Good morning. Welcome to West Hills. My name is Will Duvall. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, on behalf of all of us at West Hills, it's so wonderful to have you with us, especially if you're a first-time visitor. I know I get to meet uh, quite a few of, of you all this morning, and we're just really glad you're here. As Brandon said, we'd love to give you a token of our appreciation if you give us your info at the info bar afterwards. Um, This morning, I I get to begin um, with a special announcement in the life of our church. And uh, when I transitioned into this role uh, at West Hills six and a half months ago now, I had um, tempered, realistic expectations for what the months ahead might look like for us. I will admit to you, put my cards on the table up front, that I have long thought since I arrived at this church four years ago, over four years ago now as associate pastor, uh, that West Hill should be bigger. Uh, Not because bigger churches are better, not because we judge our effectiveness in ministry by the number of butts in the seats, uh, but because I believe since day one that West Hills is and was has been an incredible church and that we should want to share that with as many people as possible. And that as a church, that we are the body of Christ, we're a living body and healthy living things grow. God makes it clear in his word that he wants to grow his church. And so if we're not growing, then we are probably the ones getting in the way of that, of the spread of the gospel. And so when I took over as lead pastor, I just asked our elders to start praying with me simply that God would grow his church here at West Hills in time. But I was realistic. All my pastor friends and all the church leadership podcasts and books that I was um, soaking up were all telling me the same thing, that you expect to lose members before you ever see any net gain and that it would likely take years. And so my predecessor here, Gary, his parting words to me were just be faithful, just show up, preach the word, and let God take care of the rest. And so that's what I've tried to do for the last six and a half months here now, is just be faithful. And uh, I didn't come into this with any big plans uh, to shake things up. In fact, I wanted to change as little as possible, not only because people don't like change, but frankly, because West Hills wasn't broken. There wasn't a lot that needed to change as a church But it's become obvious in the six and a half months since then that God did have bigger plans for us than I did. Um, I'm a numbers guy, and so uh, you'll have to forgive me. The numbers don't lie. This time last year, we were averaging between 120 and 130 people per Sunday in worship. And for the past two months now, we've been averaging 176 people. In the church world, uh, 10% growth is considered good. 20% growth is considered excellent. You're a fast-growing church. You better figure some things out. Uh, We have been growing at 36% now for six months. (laughs) Praise the Lord for that. Um, We we had 222 people worship with us last Sunday. We have 200 seats here, and we don't have air conditioning in the balcony. Uh, we, we had over 300 join us last spring for Easter. We have 30 people signed up for our membership class next week. Um, a third of our life groups have more than 15 adults in them. You just can't even have discussion with that many people. Uh, but I can't train life group leaders fast enough 
to keep up with our growth right now. And so the stories have been just as compelling as the numbers here. I mean, we've got people on their second and third Sundays now. I'm looking at you, Luke and Hannah, filling up a row of visitors, just bringing their friends, bringing their family, because they're so excited to share this awesome new church they've found with people. We've, we have, we've had multiple families now in the past six months make big life decisions to turn down a job out of town and stay here in St. Louis or to move farther out to West County to be closer to West Hills. We're basically turning away uh, youth group volunteers right now because we have so many new college and young adult congregants coming and getting excited and wanting to plug in and serve at the church. And so I'm excited to announce this morning after much discussion and prayer amongst the elders and our various ministry leaders that we believe that God is leading us to add a second Sunday morning service uh, at West Hills starting in January 2020. And this is really exciting news uh, for a few reasons. Number one, because we'll be able to fit everybody. Um, The statistics say that if you're averaging over 80% attendance for over three months, Uh, that it's time to add a service. People will stop returning to your church because they'll perceive you don't have room for them. And uh, we're at 88% capacity on average now, if you look around. This will enable us to attract, secondly, new visitors, more newcomers. Um, If I didn't work here, I probably never would have found West Hills and checked out this church. Um, we would be looking for a church with a 9 o'clock or a 9.30 service. More and more these days, young families want to worship early and and get their days started. And so this is going to give not only visitors, but it's going to give you all options. Um, You know, when there's an early Cardinals game or during football season, whatever, we won't judge you, come to the early service. Um, And third, and most importantly, This addition is going to free us up um, to have the space and potential to share the gospel with more people each week. And at the end of the day, that's that's it. That's the only factor that matters for me. Um, We've got to figure out the details. We've got to avoid volunteer fatigue. We've got to figure out what happens with Sunday schools. Uh, We've got to protect the community feel at West Hills. Uh, I know some of y'all landed here specifically because you were looking for a smaller church, and we are committed to remaining a church that values community and fellowship as much as any other church out there that you'll find. But I just want to challenge us in all of this to continue uh, to think about this less from a standpoint of what do I want church to feel like and more from a kingdom mindset of how does God want to use West Hills for his glory to reach our city with the good news of Jesus. Amen. That's good. I'm glad you're excited because here come the details. Um, Just a couple quick bullet points before we get to our sermon. So the plan is to hold two identical services at 9 a.m. and 10.45 a.m., Um, effective January 1st. We'll offer kids programming at both services. Um, We'll have a 30-minute fellowship time from 10.15 to 10.45 in between services and encourage everyone to either stay afterwards or um, come early uh, to to continue to promote that one church tight-knit community feel. In fact, we're going to get to this in a minute. 
I encourage most of you to, to come early to serve at one church, uh, service and then stay for the second. Uh, we'll, we'll be sending out a church-wide survey soon, um, which is going to ask you which service you would prefer to attend so we can try and figure out and balance attendance between the two services. Um, so please take three minutes that it takes to fill that out and get it back to us. Uh, that will really help us. As I said, we will need and ask most of you to volunteer and serve somewhere. Welcome team, AV team, worship team, security, ushering, kids ministry, somewhere on Sunday mornings. Uh, on a pro-con list for me, this is a pro. So let me spin this for you. We should all be serving somewhere. We should. First Corinthians 12. Every member of the body is important to serve its function. And now we're just going to have more opportunities for you to do that. Um, but listen, if you are already one of the 30% of our church that does 70% of the work, because I like to think we're a little better than the old 80-20 rule, 30%, uh, my promise to you is that we do not want to make Sundays any busier for you, okay? Now, in some cases, it might mean that your volunteering, your serving gets more focused but more frequent. So, for instance, um, in Allie's uh, kids' ministry, instead of teaching two months of the year now, teachers, Allie may be asking some of you to serve every other month, six months of the year. But the trade-off is you never have to miss another worship service. But in order to pull any of this off, it will require some of us to step up, some of y'all to step up. We have 98 volunteers currently serving somewhere in a rotation on Sunday mornings at West Hills. It's almost half our church. That's pretty impressive. Thank you. If, if you're one of the 98, thank you. We couldn't do this without you. But to pull off a second service, I've crunched the numbers. We need a minimum of 116. All right, so that's at least 18 new volunteers, preferably more. But the good news and the bad news is that right now we have 106 members or regular attenders not serving somewhere on a Sunday morning. So if even a quarter of you answer the call, and I mean literally the call, I will be calling you in the coming weeks. <laughs> the pastor will be calling you and asking you to serve somewhere. If even a quarter of you answer that call, uh, then we'll be fine. And better yet, don't even wait for me to call. Come up to me afterwards in the foyer and just tell me where you're going to serve and save me the phone call. Um, but let's rise to the occasion, okay? Let's seize this opportunity to play our small part in seeing the gospel go forward into our city, amen? amen. Um, and, and listen, if you do hate change, and I can stand up here all I want and try and spin this for you, and I'm not going to convince you that this is exciting news, I just want to assure you this morning, too, that this is still your church. You're still valued here. Um, I hear you. You can feel free to come and talk to me. Share your concerns and fears. Frankly, I may share some of them with you. But um, God is doing something here at this church that we cannot deny. And we just want to be faithful to where we feel like he's, he's leading us, okay? So um, let's pray together, actually, before we transition. Father, we do want to celebrate and just applaud you for the work that you're doing in the life of West Hills Church right now. God, we know that it's not because of us, it's in spite of us, um, that we just need to get out of the way. Your word makes it clear that you want the gospel to be preached to every corner of the earth, 
that you call us to make disciples of all nations, uh, the, the least that we can do and strive for and shoot for is our city, is St. Louis. Um, we just want to be faithful stewards of the good news that you've entrusted us with in our community here. And uh, we just thank you for the ways that you are blessing those efforts. God, we pray that you would continue to bless them, that you would build your church at West Hills, not for our glory, but for yours, that you might be made famous in St. Louis, Jesus. That's why we're here. And um, we will continue to give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Um, Now, it's possible that uh, this whole idea of a second service will be a moot point after this morning's sermon. (laughs) If you've looked at your bulletin or you were here last week, you know we're going to be talking about Jesus and divorce. This is not exactly the sermon you want to preach. And I'll just go ahead and you see it there, part one. Spoil it. Um, There was too much important to say not to spread it out over, over two weeks. This is not exactly the sermon topic or series you want to go with uh, in, in launching probably a second service and trying to grow the church. Um, I don't want to preach this sermon. If you gave me a list of topics to preach on, this would literally be my last choice uh, of all the tough ones out there. Um, but it's in God's Word, and it's important, really important. Um, It wouldn't be my last choice because Scripture isn't clear about it. I think Scripture is pretty clear. Nor because it's not relevant. I think it's desperately relevant. We desperately need to hear this message this morning. But the fact is, I think we don't want to. We have a vested interest in the church in avoiding this topic. We have a vested interest in avoiding this topic at this church. I went through this this week and our, our members and regular attenders um, spreadsheet and counted, I know of at least 30 of y'all who have been divorced. And that's just the folks I know of. I expect that I will get more of you come and, and share that with me in the wake of this sermon. So it could be professionally dangerous for me to preach on this. I told you last week that Adette warned me that her father was fired for doing it at his church. Here's what happened to John the Baptist. When Herod heard of Jesus, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now granted, in Herod's case, You're also dealing with adultery, incest, but nevertheless, it's not inaccurate to say that John the Baptist lost his head for speaking out against divorce. And so I can't imagine that you all are going to do anything worse than that to me. (laughs) I hope. All jokes aside, this is a difficult personal topic for many of us. Would you raise your hand if you have been personally affected by divorce? Either your parents are divorced, or you are divorced, or someone close to you, a child, a sibling, a best friend is divorced. Would you just raise your show of hands? Okay. That's why we've got to preach about this, right? 
As Christians, we have to be equipped to deal with this difficult topic from a biblical worldview. And I'll just go ahead and remind y'all of my baggage. My parents are divorced. Their parents were divorced. Four of my six aunts and uncles are divorced. My sister is divorced. I have personally wished on more occasions than I'd like to remember over the past 11 years of my marriage that the passage that passages that we are going to study together this morning weren't included in Scripture. So if you've got an issue with anything that I say this morning, just know that it will not be because I don't get it, okay? I do get it. And more importantly, I pray that your issues won't be with something that I've said, but rather with something that God has said in His Word, His revealed, inspired, inerrant Word. I resolve to say nothing to you this morning that goes beyond the confines of Scripture. And so with that said, uh, would you stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's Word? From Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. The crowds were gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become One flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask you again this morning to bless the reading, the study, the application of your word. God, would you soften our hearts to receive it for what it is, your word? How would you give us hearts that love your word and cherish your word above our own? predispositions and preferences. God, would you challenge us wherever we come into this room from single, divorced, married, remarried, uh, would you challenge us but also encourage us this morning? God, we need to hear good news. Um, And so would you do that and do a work in the hearts of your people this morning? It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. The first question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, what is the posture of my heart? I'm only going to address the first two questions in your bulletin. The first one is, what is the posture of my heart? Now, contextually, in... Mark chapter 10, the attitude of the Pharisees' hearts who prompt this whole conversation with Jesus in the first place is really clear. Mark tells us in verse 2 that as Jesus was teaching the crowds, the Pharisees came in order to test him. 
Now, they they already know Jesus' position on the topic. He's made it really clear in his Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the Pharisees aren't here for clarification. They aren't here for a friendly exchange of ideas. They are here to entrap and incriminate Jesus. And by the way, verse 1 informs us that Jesus had just crossed the Jordan into the land of Perea, which was Herod Antipas's territory, the same Herod that beheaded John the Baptist back in chapter 6. So the Pharisees have got him literally right where they want him. They're praying here for a double decapitation. And it isn't, isn't it interesting that typically the Pharisees accuse Jesus of being too liberal with respect to the law, right? When it comes to observing the Sabbath, keeping kosher dietary laws, the Pharisees are stringent legalists because those laws suit their purposes. They are a small price to pay for the Pharisees' religious superiority over and subordination of the masses. But when it comes to something like divorce... And this this thought of answering to a higher authority, the idea that God is the one who instituted and ordains marriage, that we are accountable to him, the Pharisees will not accept that. They rather enjoy wielding the power of divorce over their wives. See, the prevailing school of rabbinic thought and interpretation of first century Judaism allowed for divorce in most every case. That's why Matthew's version of this same exchange uh, the Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful for, to, to divorce one's wife for any and every reason? They take divorce for granted. They simply want to know if there's ever such a thing as a bad divorce. And their oral inter- tradition here was a misunderstanding of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, the most significant passage in the Old Testament on divorce which says when a man takes a wife and marries her, if, he then, uh, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and then later that latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife and then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. See, first century Judaism took this as God's sanctioning of divorce, but don't miss two important things about this passage. Number one, like so many other alleged atrocities in the Old Testament, slavery, polygamy. Please note that this passage does not promote divorce. It is descriptive. It is not prescriptive. It doesn't say a man should divorce his wife if she stops finding favor in his eyes. It's merely describing a situation in which he has already divorced her, whether he did so sinfully or not. And secondly, what is prescriptive here is that if he's divorced her, he can't take her back. Why? Because verse 4, her remarriage has defiled her. We'll come back to this next week. But the Pharisees jumped on this one obscure passage and twisted its meaning and devised from it an entire system of loopholes for getting out of undesirable marriages. Rabbi Hillel proposed that a wife's indecency could refer to her burning her husband's dinner. 
That was sufficient grounds for a divorce. Rabbi Akiba suggested that a man's finding another woman fairer than his own wife was enough. Sufficient grounds for divorce. The Pharisees' commitment here isn't to God or his word. It's to themselves. And they will twist the law however they need to, either to make it stricter or looser, in order to serve their own purposes. But Jesus is always committed to his Father's word. And so, the usually bleeding heart liberal Jesus all of a sudden gets rebranded as the crazy conservative here. If the Pharisees can't turn the crowds against Jesus by questioning his devotion to the law, they'll try and charging him with hyper-devotion instead. He's too loyal. He's too strict. And so the first question you and I need to ask ourselves this morning is what is the posture of my own heart? Am I coming to Jesus? Am I coming to God's word? Looking for validation of the things I have already resolved to believe, made up my mind about? Am I looking for him to tell me what I want to hear about divorce or about any other issue for that matter? You can twist scripture in all sorts of ways on any number of issues. We see that all over the place in the church world today. Churches that cherry pick one or two passages from scripture to the obvious exclusion of others and perform exegetical gymnastics to try and justify and make a verse mean what they want it to mean instead of receiving it as the word of God with authority over me, and over my preferences in all matters of life and faith and practice. And so before we even broach this question of what Jesus thinks about divorce, the first prerequisite question is what do I think about Jesus? Because if your pride won't allow you to submit to him as the authority on this issue, if your guilt and your shame from a past divorce won't allow you to hear any critique from Jesus this morning, then I would humbly suggest that you go and pray for a softened heart, for eyes to see and ears to hear, and then come back and re-listen to this sermon later uh, when you're ready. It'll be online waiting for you. But for those who would hear, the second question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is what is God's design for marriage? What is God's design for marriage? See, in order to understand why God hates divorce so much, and he does, that's a direct quote from Scripture, Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce. To understand why, we must first understand why God loves marriage so much. That's right. And we're going to be studying Genesis together in uh, 2020, next year. And so I'll save a deeper exposition on this topic for later. But, but that's where Jesus is going to take them in verses 6 through 9 here. Back to Genesis, chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image, male and female. He created them. And chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The Pharisees are hung up on this obscure, descriptive reference to divorce from Deuteronomy. And Jesus pushes back here in verse 3 by asking a really pointed question in typical Jesus fashion. What did Moses command you? Command you. 
Jesus wants to shift their focus from a debatable, hypothetical description to an absolute, timeless prescription, a command from God himself since the beginning of creation that is not just binding on Jews in their law. It is not just binding for Christians in the New Testament. This is binding in creation. According to Jesus, this command from God with respect to the institution of marriage that he designed and that he blessed all of humanity with is universal, that a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, and they shall no longer be two but one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. Those are commands. You shall do this. You shall not do that. So why does God take this, take marriage so seriously? Why does he Love it so much. Because according to scripture, marriage is the best portrayal. It is the closest analogy that we have been given as humans of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. I just want to point us to two key passages on this biblically. First, the Old Testament example of Hosea. God specifically called the prophet Hosea to go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. Why? As a prophetic rebuke against the Israelites' whorings after other gods and forsaking of their covenant marriage to Yahweh. God uses Hosea and Gomer to remind Israel of his unconditional love and his covenant fidelity despite their faithlessness. And what is marriage all about, if not that? That's what we're told in the New Testament. Let's go to the New Testament, Ephesians 5. The most important passage on marriage in all of Scripture, Ephesians 5, that should be preached at every Christian wedding. Paul again takes us back to God's original design and purpose for marriage. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But then Paul says, adds, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a profound mystery precisely because it is a covenant symbol of God's loving faithfulness to his people, of Christ's commitment to his bride, his church. That is the purpose of marriage, friends. Do we realize that? The purpose of marriage is not to make you happy. It's not to make you more fulfilled. God created marriage and gave it to you and me as a way of bringing him glory by reflecting to an unbelieving world God's covenant, unfailing commitment of love and faithfulness to his people. Marriage isn't primarily about us crazy to think about because it seems like it's this thing between two people. It's not primarily about us. It's about God. It's about Christ. It's about bearing witness to his love for his bride, the church. And so a Christian getting divorced because he's no longer happy and fulfilled because she's no longer in love with her husband It's like selling a car because it didn't make you a good cup of coffee. 
That's not what a car is for. Marriage is meant for God's glory. Let's quit making marriage about something that it's not about. It's not about your personal happiness. We talk about evangelism a lot in the church. Being a witness for Jesus. You want to share the good news with others? Stay married. Stay married. My Aunt Becky, the one who didn't get divorced, she ran away when she was 18 years old. She didn't listen to her parents' warnings. She got married and she realized in year one that she had made the biggest mistake of her life. She'd married the most selfish, miserable, narcissistic, cheating man you'd ever meet in your life, my late Uncle Harris. And she stayed married to him for over 50 years till he passed away. That might be the most powerful depiction of the gospel you and I will ever see in this life. God is loving and faithful. We are sinful and we cheat on him every day. And yet he chooses to keep his promises to us. Marriage is a choice, friends. Love is a choice. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. That Jesus, what? That he had really strong feelings for us? That he felt happy and fulfilled by his relationship with us? That he laid down his life for us? So John reasons, the least we can do is lay down our lives for others. Will you start with your spouse? Will you start with your spouse today? Make that choice again today to lay down your life for her, for him. And then make it again tomorrow. And then make that choice again the next day, and the next day, and the next day. To stay true to your promise and faithfully represent God's undying love for his bride to a lost world. That's why God hates divorce so much, because it tells the world a lie about God. God also hates divorce because spiritually, if two have really become one flesh, then a new spiritual entity has been conceived. Two become one That brings to mind for me the image of sexual conception. One egg, one sperm becomes one zygote. One plus one equals one. You want a profound mystery? Go rewatch the video from ninth grade high school biology about how babies are made. That is a profound mystery. It will blow your mind. I rewatched it this past week in preparation. It blew my mind again. In God's eyes, when you got married, a new creature was born. A new, invisible, yet no less significant entity. Remember, God is invisible, so a thing's worth is not tied to its visibility. A new spiritual entity was born. A marriage. Pollyannized marriage counselor has to remind us of this frequently that she's not there to side with either one of us. She's there to advocate for the invisible third party in the room, that sacred, living, spiritual bond between us. God hates divorce so much because it amounts to taking a spiritual hacksaw 
and sawing that marriage in two. Imagine how physically sickened you would be if you watched someone physically get sawed in two. That's how God spiritually sees divorce. So Jesus says unequivocally, what God has joined together, let no man separate. This thing is bigger than you now. God has gotten involved and blessed a marriage. You've given birth to something now that you no longer have the authority to dispose of any more than you could decide to saw your toddler into if she stopped bringing you joy. This is heavy. But if all of that is true, it leads us to some equally weighty, heavy follow-up questions. First of all, why does God appear then to allow for even the possibility of divorce in Deuteronomy 24? Why make a provisionary rule about how to handle the aftermath of a divorce if it shouldn't even exist to begin with? Secondly, are there ever cases that justify divorce? What about Jesus' so-called exception clauses for divorce? Matthew 5.32, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Matthew 19.9, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. We might also add the Apostle Paul, his exception. 1 Corinthians 7 Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. So what does Jesus mean? What does Paul mean here by sexual immorality, by separation? What exactly is covered by these exception clauses? Is, is that just when a spouse is cheating or having an affair or gets left? What about cases of abuse? And in those cases... Is remarriage permitted for the Christian? In the case of an exception clause, divorce, then can I get remarried? What if I'm already remarried? Does that mean I'm guilty of perpetual adultery? Every day that I stay in this second marriage, this third marriage, I'm committing adultery in God's eyes. Is that what that means? Should I dissolve my, my later marriage because in God's eyes, only my first marriage was binding and valid and unbreakable? Those are all excellent questions, and I'm glad you asked them. And as I told you, um, I must be a glutton for punishment because I, in my preparation, over-preparation for this really important topic, I let God convince me that, they, that this was an important enough topic to spend two weeks on. And so uh, rather than keep us here till one or two, I know we've got a Cardinals game to get to. Um, you're going to have to come back next week and get answers to the rest of those questions. But here's how I want to end this morning, all right? This is really important. The enemy, Satan. We have an enemy. And Satan would love to have you do one of three things if you're here this morning. Number one, you could write this off as irrelevant. I'm single. This doesn't apply to me. Why the big deal? 
Number two, you could listen vicariously to this message, perhaps even judgmentally so, on behalf of someone else who you think needs to hear this sermon more than you do. Or, number three, if you have been divorced, or perhaps like me, you've even just considered it. Because remember, Jesus says, if you looked with a lust in your eyes with a woman, you, you might as well have committed adultery. It's the same thing. Satan would love nothing more than to pull you back down into that pit of guilt and shame this morning. So let me just end this way. Number one, this is relevant to you. No matter your station of life, even, even if you never get married, when over three-quarters of the adult population in our country will get married in their lives, and considering how hugely important God says this relationship is, yes, it affects you. At least in a strong, indirect way, if not directly. Number two, maybe that friend does need to hear this sermon too. Sure, send her the audio link once Taylor posts it online. But please do not miss this morning how God wants to challenge you in your marriage. How can you be more faithful to your spouse today? If it's an analogy of the covenant with him, how can you be more faithful to your covenant, your, your ultimate partner, the Lord, in your, in your marriage to him? And finally, number three, for those of you who would be tempted to leave here in shame today and despair, please hear the good news of Jesus, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor divorce nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you now from the love of God that is yours in Christ Jesus. We've already studied the unforgivable sin. That was back in chapter 3. Guess what? It's not divorce. So for all who are in Christ Jesus, you can leave here this morning in peace, in blessed assurance, knowing that even when we break our promises, even the big ones, even the biggest ones, God stays true to his promise to us. 2 Timothy 2.13, that even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray.